tonight to Second Samuel chapter 18. We left off at verse 18, and just for a moment's review, we remember that Absalom had led his troops in rebellion against David to fight David out in the wilderness of the Jordan, on the other side of the Jordan River, modern-day Jordan. David had chosen. Uh, carefully chosen the ground that he was going to defend on. and uh, But more than that, more than his experience as a great uh, general and a warrior, uh, God gave them the victory that day uh, over his son and over the army that his son took into battle. We don't know how, how large Absalom's army was. We just know 20,000 men died in the army. And uh, how many fled, we don't know. But it was a a terrible slaughter, a terrible defeat, and uh, Joab killed Absalom as he hung uh, in the air, his head, evidently his hair, caught in the trees, and, uh, and Joab defying David's command that Absalom would be spared in the battle if possible. Joab took things into his own hands and killed uh, Absalom, and then now, uh, without a leader in their rebellion, this uh, Absalom uh, there was no sense now fighting against fellow Jews. Joab blew the trumpet to signal that the war was essentially over and uh, that those loyal to David were to give up the pursuit. So here is the aftermath now of the battle. And Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, Zadok was one of the priests, he said to Joab, let me run now and take news to the king, King David, and uh, tell him how the Lord has avenged him of all of his enemies. Let me be the messenger that takes the message to David that uh, informs him of this great victory. And remember, David did not lead them into battle uh, because of his age and because of the fact that uh, he was the target in the battle. And so there was no... um, uh, you know, telephones, there were no <laughs> radios, nothing in those days. If you were going to get information from a battle on a battle, no satellites, nothing like that. Uh, that information had to come to you by way of, of a human courier. And so he's asking to take this uh, news of the victory. And Joab said to him, has, he said, you shall not take the news this day, for you shall take news to David another day, but today you shall take no news because the king's son is dead. Now, Ahimehaz is a younger man. He doesn't know David as well as Joab knows. And so he thinks David is going to be very excited to hear the news of uh, their victory over Absalom and his army. And David, uh, Joab knows David very well and realizes that What will mean more to David on that day, the loss of his son will be a greater grief to him than the victory of the army. And so he doesn't want Ahimehaz's name to be associated with kind of the darkness of the day in David's heart. And so he wants to send a different messenger. He only wants this kid carrying good news. And he's kind of a friend of the family, so to speak. And so Joab wanted a foreigner to carry the news. And so he said to a Cushite, an Ethiopian man who was a part of uh, their forces, he said, go and tell the king what you have seen. Go deliver the news of the day. And so the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and he began to 
run back to the city that David was in to give him the news. And Ahimehaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, but whatever happens, please, please, have you ever heard, parents have heard it, please, please, please let me run after the Cushite. And so Joab said, why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? And he said, but whatever happens, let me run. And so he wears down even a strong man like Joab. And so Joab said to him, run. And Ahimehaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. So Joab gave the Cushite what he felt would be plenty of room for him to get to David long before Ahimehaz would get with the news. But Ahimehaz knew a shortcut. It was actually the route that he takes over the Cushite is a longer route, but it's easier terrain. And so he's going to get to David before the Cushite. And so he said, just go and, and run. And David was sitting between the two gates of the city. Of course, he'd be on edge. How is the battle going to go? And, and all of this waiting for news. And so a watchman went up on the roof over the gate to the wall, lifted up his eyes, and, and he looked. And there was a man uh, there was a man running alone. Now, that was uh, a good news because that usually meant that a messenger was coming from the battlefront to bring you a message. And when it was one messenger, it was good news. If thousands of men were coming over the hill and running for the city, that was bad news. And so this uh, this looked good. And then the watchman cried out and he told the king and the king said, if he's alone, there's news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and he drew near. And then the watchman saw another man running and the watchman said to the gatekeeper and uh, called to the gatekeeper and said, there's another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. And so the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimehaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he's a good man. He comes with good news. So Joab apparently had only dispatched him to bring good news. And so David uh, thinks that, you know, altogether good news is going to be coming to him. And so uh, Ahimehaz uh, comes to David, called out, said to the king, all is well. And then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. king doesn't care about it. That's just what Joab said. The king's interest was in Absalom, his son. He said, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahimehaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant and me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I didn't know what it was about. Lie. You notice all the way back in verse 20, Joab said to him, you shall not take news this day, for you shall take news another day. But today you shall take no news because the king's son is dead. David plainly asks him, what's the status of my son? He said, I don't know. There was a great commotion. I, I, uh, I don't know what really happened. He he's a messenger who refuses to deliver the message because he does not want to deliver bad news. He's he's the kind of messenger that only wants to deliver what he knows will be good news for uh, the listener. And he's unwilling to deliver the truth when it's not popular. I remember watching a thing on television they're interviewing the pastor of the largest church in the United States of America. 
And uh, the interviewer asked him about the fact that he doesn't talk about sin or repentance or judgment or any of these things. And he said, well, God has called me to deliver a positive message. I think about Ahimehaz on that. If you cannot deliver God's message, whatever the reaction of the listener, then don't be a messenger. The responsibility is to carry the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help us God. And Ahimehaz, it's a very, very poor reflection on him here, and, uh, and not only upon him, but in, in searching our own hearts, that we never drop down to this and say, I'll, I will never say the hard thing that needs to be said in a given situation. I always want to be thought of uh, positively. And so the king said to him, turn aside and stand here. And so he turned aside and stood still. He was no, of no use to David with half a message. And just then the Cushite came and the Cushite said, there is good news, my lord, the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, again, this is his great concern, is the young man Absalom safe? And so the Cushite said, may the enemies of my Lord, the king and all who rise up against you to do harm be like that young man. In other words, dead. May they all die a violent death. Now, he says it with great tact. He's talking to a king who happens to also be the father of this uh, uh, rebel. And uh, so, but he delivers the message. He delivers the good. He delivers the hard. He delivers the entire message uh, to the Lord. And then the king's reaction. He was deeply moved. Just hit him like a ton of bricks. Obviously, his great hope was that somehow Absalom would survive the battle. It's absolutely illogical that he would think that way, but we're not always logical in our hopes as parents related to our children. And so he's in a tough place. He's, he wears two mantles in life. We've talked about it in the past. He is the king of Israel, and he has to look at things a certain way as the king, but he's also a father to this boy. And so he's he's looking at it a, a different way. And what requ what is required of him in both those roles are two entirely different things. So it's a really, really tough place for a father to find himself in. And so when David hears of the death of his son, he went up to the chamber over the gate. That is, he went into a private room, but it wasn't so private that they couldn't hear. And he began to weep. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And so you hear, you know, the anguish of the father as he repeats the name of his uh, the uh, relationship of Absalom, re repeats his name over and over again, the relationship, my son, my son. And in spite of everything that Absalom had done to David, David still loved his son. Uh, very, very deeply. Now, it's, this is a perfectly understandable uh, reaction of David and, uh, and would have been understood by anyone and overlooked by anyone if it had been a relatively short period of grief that he was showing. But he ends up uh, carrying this on uh, far too publicly and far too long for it not to begin um, to have an impact upon the soldiers who went out to fight for him that day and risked their life to save, uh, save him and to save 
his family. And so he immediately goes into mourning. He fails to meet the troops as they come victorious from the battlefield to express thanks to them for rescuing their very lives for him, his family, the nation of Israel. And he just becomes completely consumed in his own grief. And he and a king can't do that. There's certain roles that you just can't do that in. And, and David uh, went too far in, uh, in, in, in ignoring everyone else except this personal loss. So Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning uh, for Absalom. So David, Joab, word gets back to him of the reaction uh, of David. And so the victory that day was turned into mourning for all of the people. For the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. And these these soldiers that went out to fight for him, again, risked their life. You You only have one life. They risked their very life for David, for Israel, and, and for his family and his wives and his children. And Solomon is going to be the next king in all. And when they heard the news that their victory had produced this kind of grief in the heart of David, they stole back into the city that day as people who were ashamed to steal away when they flee in battle. In other words, this should have been a great day of celebration. We have defeated the enemy. Israel is going to continue to have David as as their king. A great day, a day to celebrate, as I said. And then instead now, they come back into the camp and into the city as if they had been defeated in battle. Or worse, as if they had uh, retreated and had been cowards in the battle. And so this is how it affected the soldiers. Word came back to them that this was David's reaction, began to impact them in this way, and they, uh, it, it, they then slink back uh, into the city. Now, this, this response of David, and Joab's going to rebuke David in just a moment, but uh, this response of David... Uh, really stung his soldiers. They're very confused by it. And, and not only did it sting the soldiers, but it really stung Joab because he had gone out to fight for David as well. And he realized that David's reaction, David, you are about to produce a mutiny in your army that's way worse than anything you've ever faced yet. And you faced a lot of hardship so far. So David, David is looking at things solely on the basis of a father. Joab comes in and is going to help him regain perspective because Joab's perspective is completely on the level of the soldier and what they've just done for him. And, I, and again, I think Joab was stung at David's ingratitude or at least his insensitivity for what they had just done for him out in the battlefield. But the king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice. So this is continuing. Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines. In that you love your enemies and you hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today 
I perceive, and it was the perception of the whole army, that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died out on the battlefield, then that would have pleased you well. You would have loved to have that happen more than, than what has happened. Now, that wasn't David's heart, but that's, that's how his soldiers in Joab were reading his reaction here. And so he's in a real dangerous spot. I think that every leader, I don't care who any of us are, I don't care if they're the CEO of a billion dollar company, Fortune 500 company, or what we are individually, personally, in our own personal lives, all of us should have at least one Joab in our life. One person who knows us very well, doesn't do it on a daily basis. But they have the freedom to walk into our lives and to set us straight if we are in the middle of missing a major thing that is happening around us. And we are in the middle of making a terrible, terrible decision. And to Joab's credit, he was willing to step up and really, in a sense, risk his life speaking in this way to a king in the ancient world. And David is to be credited because uh, he, he really does listen to what it is that uh, Joab uh, speaks to him. And so he accepts that, uh, that counsel. So he needed the perspective and you're disgracing your soldiers. You're, you're making them feel you know, terrible and all. And uh, so uh, Joab comes and tells him this. David receives it. Now, it's, I think it's important to realize that David at this point in time in receiving Joab's counsel, which was very good counsel, he, does, he has not heard yet the circumstances of Absalom's death. He doesn't know that Joab is the one that put three spears in his heart. Later on, he's going to find out, and, and it's going to create great tension in the relationship. And so Joab takes and rebukes him here for it. And here's his counsel. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak comfort, uh, encouragement, thanksgiving to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you don't go out, you don't, you don't turn on a dime right now, emotionally where you are right now. Not one of these men is going to stay with you this night. I'm telling you, I got my finger on the pulse of this army and you've hurt them in a big way. You'll find a camp empty tomorrow. And, and he would have known what he was talking about. And that'll be worse for you than all the evil that's befallen you from your youth until now. And David's response to this uh, counsel of Joab was he arose and he went out and he sat in the gate and and they told all of the people there is the king sitting at the gate. And so all the people came before the king for everyone had fled to his tent. And so David then goes into the gate, which was the place of the rulers. And even as David had saluted them at the gate when they went out into battle, now without a doubt, he expresses his thanks to them for what they've done for him, his family, and done for the nation. And so uh, he obeys the council, and it is a very, very uh, good move. Now, all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he's fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? Now, Absalom's death uh, left the nation of Israel in a state of confusion. Now they don't know what to do. 
because they thought Absalom was going to go in there, kill his father. They would. Uh, and, and this is how the whole plan was supposed to play out. Nothing has worked out the way that they thought it would work out. So they don't have a plan B at all here. And so they realize that they've made a very bad decision in rebelling against uh, David and following Absalom. And they realize that the way to rectify this in, in a proper way is to reestablish David uh, as the king. And so there is a division among the people now, uh, not David's army or those who were with him, but the nation as a whole. And some of them were as they had this discussion back and forth. Some of them said, well, who else but David? I mean, he's conquered the Philistines. He's the king of the nation. God has used him to make our nation the greatest it's ever been in its entire history. He's a proven leader. He's a proven warrior. Who else are we going to make king? And then there were others in the group that looked and said, yeah, but, you know, when push came to shove, he abandoned Jerusalem and he went and crossed the Jordan and, and he left the land of Israel. And, and so they, they held that uh, against him. But the general consensus was that David should be uh, reinstalled as, as the king. Now, apparently David gets word that they're uh, considering reinstalling him uh, as the king. And so David then approaches the men of the tribe of Judah uh, in, uh, uh, in, in verse 11. So the king sent so the king sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, saying, I want you to take a message to the elders of Judah. This is his, his tribe, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since the words of all Israel have come to the king to his very house? So David sends a messenger uh, through the priest to his tribe of Judah and says, Hey, I'm getting word from the other 10, 11 tribes of Israel that they're about to ask me to become the king again. You're my own flesh and blood. Why are you hesitating to approach me to reinstall me as the king? So he, he approaches his own tribe. Now, the reason that they probably were hesitant to approach him, to reinstall him as the king, is that they had been the most traitorous tribe of all in following Absalom. I mean, here was his own flesh and blood, and they they turned on David and and were uh, treasonous toward him worse than any of the other tribes. And so their hesitation would be, I mean, treason in the old days, that was death. Their hesitation had to be, yes, we want David to be the king, but we got some complications here. We we betrayed him worse than any other tribe. And if we make him the king again, what's he going to do to us, the leaders? What's he going to do to us as a tribe once he's got power? Is he going to come in and slaughter us because of our unfaithfulness? So life gets complicated when you make decisions on the basis of power and and wealth and these things rather than just what is the right thing. So David, they're not coming to him. So David approaches them related to their uh, hesitation. And then he said, here's the message I want you to deliver to them as a part of the message. Say to Amasa, remember, he is the general that led Absalom's troops into battle against David and was uh, the nephew of David. I want you to say to Amasa there as he's gathered with the men of Judah, are you not flesh? Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do to me 
and more also if you are not commander of the army before me continually in the place of uh, Joab. And so uh, here he makes the promise here that um, anybody else hear that or was that just my ears? So here he he makes the the offer to his nephew Amasa that uh, if they restore him, then he's going to make him his uh, commander in chief over his armed forces. And so uh, certainly the decision wasn't based upon uh, Amasa's military genius. He had just led the army of Israel uh, for Absalom, not only into a terrible defeat, but into a terrible, terrible slaughter. So he wasn't even remotely the general that Joab was. But by this time, David has learned that Joab was the one who put three spears in the heart of his son. After he had commanded that if there was any way to deliver him out of battle safely, that he was to be delivered out of the battle safely. So in approaching here and making Amasa the general would have accomplished a couple of things. First, it would have erased their fears concerning revenge. As as the commander of Absalom's army, Amasa had been the most disloyal of all. And David said, He's going to lead the, uh, the military. In other words, this would prove to them, I'm not planning any kind of campaign of revenge. The second thing that it accomplished is it allowed David to uh, punish Joab for his deliberate disobedience to his command that Absalom was to be spared in battle if possible. Joab could have easily taken Absalom captive out in that uh, battlefield, but for his own reasons, and, they, and humanly speaking, they were very good reasons uh, that, you know, the two of them were not going to be able to reign together, David and Absalom. And so he kind of killed them uh, on the spot. It, it, with, jo- with David here and the beef that he has with Joab, it isn't just that Joab killed Absalom, but that he had done it in defiance of an open order, a public order that that David had made in front of the whole nation. And so David couldn't allow this kind of rebellion to operate as kind of a leaven within the nation. The interesting thing is, is that David wasn't asking of Joab what he hadn't shown in his own life. You think about David's treatment of King Saul. David's a good king. King Saul was not a good king. And yet David obeyed the commands of King Saul because he felt that it was God's responsibility to take Saul out and do with Saul whatever he wanted to do with with Saul. It was his responsibility to support Saul, even if he was making a poor decision. And David was very loyal. He was more loyal to a bad king than Joab had been to a good king. And 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 truly, uh, Joab had shown great, great disrespect publicly to David in in killing his son in defiance of that order. And so by offering this uh, uh, kind of uh, olive branch uh, to the tribe of Judah, he swayed the hearts of all of the men of Judah. Sometimes, you know, you read in different commentaries and it's and basically they'll say, well, David was quite a politician here. And so he's kind of speaking out of both sides of his mouth and he knew what they would want to hear in order for him to become the king. I just I hate that view 
of this because I don't believe it. Uh, David, he says, 60 years old at this point in his life. That's real old for those days. He's fought so many battles and he's been through so much trouble and he, he doesn't want any more wars. He's really a man of peace at this point. And so he just wants to continue God's call upon his life and let's minimize the, the bloodshed and, and all. He's going to be forced in the next chapter to to escalate that a little bit, but he's just wanting to to get things back to ruling the nation, the nation being what it's supposed to be before God. This wasn't some kind of, a, a, you know, politician's uh, game. And so he swayed the hearts of all the men of Israel just as the heart of one man. And so they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. So with the reassurance of their safety, that this was the heart of God, of David toward them, a heart of grace, they invite him to return as the king. And then the king returned and he came to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and, the, and escort the king across the Jordan, that is the Jordan River. So here they come now, David's being restored uh, by the tribe of Judah, being brought back into Jerusalem. And then we're told, and Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, who was from Baharim, hurried, and he came down with the men of Judah to meet David. Remember, this is the guy when David was fleeing out of the city, he's cursing David calling God's curse upon him and uh, throwing stones and dust at David and his family and all. And, and, you know, kind of praying that he'll die and calling him a wicked man and a bloodthirsty man and, and uh, all of these things. And Abishai had wanted to kill uh, Shimei and David had restrained him. And so now he hears that David has won the victory in battle. He's now crossing the Jordan. He's going to be the king again. And what is a guy like Shimei going to think? I'm a dead duck. That's what he's going to think. One of the first things that David's going to do is he's going to say, go find Shimei. And I want to see his head on my desk before tomorrow morning. I mean, that's the way that it operated in the ancient world. So he figures, wow, I better catch David with that first group of men that are catching him as he comes back into the land and try and get this thing uh, right with him. Otherwise, and he hopes if he catches him early enough and he's going to catch David, he purposely catches David in a public setting because he figures this would be less likely that David will order me to be uh, executed right on the spot. So he's, he's basically going to fight for his life now. There was a thousand men of Benjamin with him that also came to escort David across Judah and Benjamin were two of the twelve tribes that came to bring him back into the land. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, his 15 sons and his 20 servants were with David. And they went over the Jordan before the king. And then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. Now Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. And then he said to the king, do not let my Lord impute iniquity to me or remember the wrong that your servant did on the day that the Lord, that my Lord, the king, he's getting Lord and king in there about as much and servant in there as much as he can on the day that my Lord, the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. 
You didn't think I was serious. When I was asking God to damn you to eternal destruction and all these kinds of things. And, and so I hope, David, you didn't take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. And therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph uh, to go down and to meet my Lord, the king. And so he pleads with him not to remember all of uh, the things that he had done wrong, confesses that he's done wrong and hopes that he'll take into account the fact that I'm one of the first to greet you in here and in showing grace. Now, his apology that he makes here uh, to David, absolutely insincere. He's not, sor- he's not sorry at all for, for what he's done on a moral or righteous level. He's only sorry that the tables have turned now and the circumstances have changed and now put his uh, life in, in danger. He's still a very dangerous man because his heart toward David hasn't really changed. It's one thing to be sorry For the sin I've committed, it's another thing to be sorry that I got caught or to be sorry that I'm now facing the consequences for my sin. And that's what uh, Shimei is facing here. You say, how in the world do you know? If his heart had really changed toward David, he would have come and apologized to David while he was still in exile. When the apology would have meant something. When it would have been voluntary and not forced to complicate it by the motive of saving uh, his life. And, and so it, it's important to notice that Shimei regrets having said what he said out loud. <laughs> but he doesn't declare that his hard attitude toward David had changed at all. Now, uh, Abishai, uh, he hasn't changed. He has the same feelings about uh, uh, about uh, Shimei that he always had. And Abishai, the son of Zerai, he's the brother of Joab, he answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? So the sword was the solution to everything uh, for these brothers. But again, here we have a misguided love and, and a, 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 a misguided zeal for David that wants to express itself in in this way, and, and we have to be careful, again, as we've seen before, of the counsel that people that love us most uh, will give us sometimes when it's a time to show some grace. And David said, what do I have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should be adversaries to me today? Why are you tempting me to make a decision like this? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? This is a great day in Israel, for do I not do Uh, For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? And so David, again, is a beautiful characteristic of his leadership style. He says, listen, I'm the king. I know I'm the king. I'm confident and secure in that. I don't have to be killing people to prove to everyone that I have the power of of being a king. And uh, so... He says, no, we don't need uh, to do this kind of thing to prove some kind of a point that I'm a tough guy and I know how to rule and and all of that. And therefore, the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king swore to him that he wouldn't die. And so David extends grace to Shimei. But we're going to see later on in the book, and actually the next book when we get into first Kings, that he still doesn't uh, trust Shimei as far as he can uh, throw him.
And because of the danger that Shimei uh, posed to David and David's bloodline, his sons, to become the king, when David is about to die, he instructs Solomon to handle uh, Shimei very, very carefully after his death to give him room to reveal his attitude toward David and toward his sons as the royal bloodline as kings to see whether he was a true supporter uh, of, of David's lineage or a rebel. And, and as we get to that, we'll see that Shimei is going to fail Solomon's tests and he's going to expose himself as a rebel and he'll be uh, executed accordingly. Now, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, remember the son of Jonathan and his, his uh, feet were all broken because he had been dropped by a nurse at a young age, and, they lay, and his ankles had not been uh, set properly, and David had invited him to become a part of the family and eat at the table and all. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, he came down to meet the king as he crossed the river, and he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day that the king departed until the day that he returned in peace. Pew-wee! Somebody says, oh, that's a perfect description of my husband. <laughs> so remember Mephibosheth, Ziba, was Mephibosheth's servants, uh, servant, and his family and his servants were to Mephibosheth. And Ziba brings out these donkeys filled with food and water and wine and everything to sustain David as his family is fleeing from Jerusalem. And when David says, where's Mephibosheth to Ziba? Ziba said, hey, he's, he's happy back in Jerusalem, thinks that somehow uh, the, the lineage of Saul is going to become king again and he's going to become king. He's happy for this revolt against you, David. And so that was the report that was brought to David. David doesn't know what the truth is. And so he, he uh, wants to know what the truth is. And Mephibosheth shows up before the king. And this is his condition. Now, the fact that he hadn't cared for his feet means that he probably hadn't washed his feet probably a number of weeks Hadn't trimmed his nails. I don't want to get too detailed on all of this. Hadn't trimmed his mustache. So this thing's all over the place. Hadn't washed his clothes. So wearing the same clothes for weeks. And uh, from the day that the king departed until the day that he returned in peace. Now, the interesting thing that he does here is those are those are open, uh, blatant expressions of mourning. So the second David left in this revolt of Absalom, he started showing outwardly that he was not in agreement with Absalom's rule or this rebellion, that his heart was still loyal to David and at considerable risk to himself because Absalom could have come upon him, seen him in this condition of mourning and said, listen, if you're not going to get on board, I'm going to kill you and your entire family. And a guy as crazy as that it could have done it. So this was a big deal for Mephibosheth to make this kind of a, a public stand of loyalty to David. And so it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king then asked him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, my Lord, O king, my servant Ziba, he deceived me. Your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself and I will ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. I asked Ziba to get a donkey for me so I could get on it and ride out and flee the city with you. And uh, but instead of bringing me the donkey, he did this whole thing 
And he left me here and went out. And then he slandered your servant to the, my Lord, the king. But my Lord, the king is like an angel of God. Therefore, you do whatever is good in your eyes. So he tells him, it's not what Ziba said. It's the exact opposite. And so you do what's good in your eyes. For all my father's house were dead men before the Lord, the king. Yet you have set your servant, uh, your those Yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right have I to still cry out any more to the king? And so the king said, why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said you and Ziba uh, divide the land. And so David's kind of put in a difficult place. And I don't know if you've been in that place before where you got two people who are telling their side of the story and they are absolutely diametrically opposed to one another. And yet neither one of them is going to move from their version of, of the story. And uh, David doesn't have the time. He's pretty pressured time-wise becoming the king again to you know work his way through all of the details of this. But he doesn't know who's telling the truth and who isn't telling the truth here. And so what he says is, and, and obviously he gives great credence to um, Mephibosheth's position because when Ziba told the lie, he said, Ziba, everything of Mephibosheth's is yours. Now he listens to Mephibosheth's account of things. He believes there's some truth to it. And he says, all right, divide it down in the middle. You each get a, a portion of it. And basically, he says, he's leaving it with God to bring out the truth. I have sat with people, two people in a room. And you think you get two people in a room, you're going to, you got enough time, you'll get the facts, you'll get the truth. You can sit with two parties in a room and after an hour and a half or two hours, still walk away and not understand what the truth is about a situation. It's just the way that it is. And there are some situations, even within the body of Christ, we're kind of like David. You look at it and you say, there is no way humanly that I can establish what the facts are in this situation. But they know what the truth is, and God knows what the truth is. I'm going to put it in his hands to expose who's lying and who's telling the truth. And it's the most that you can do in the situation. Sometimes people get frustrated with that. They want you to keep hammering away at the thing until, you know, you've got the, you know, the truth on it. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes only God knows what the truth is, and he's very good at it, it, bringing it out. But sometimes it takes a lot longer than, than we like it to take. And, and so David says, you and Ziba divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather, let him take it all. I don't care about land schman. It doesn't mean anything to me inasmuch as my Lord, the king, has come back in peace to his own house. David, I don't care about land. I didn't have anything when you brought me into your household. All I care about is that you've come back and you're the king once again. Beautiful heart of Mephibosheth. Now, Barzillai, the Gileadite, he came down from uh, Rogalim. Is that like a hair product? It's a lot like it, isn't it? What is that hair product? Rogaine. Like I don't know. That's what you're thinking, aren't you? Some Rogaine. So Barzillai, the Gileadite, uh, remember he, very wealthy man, when David was fleeing with his family into the wilderness, 
He's the one that brought out all kinds of food and, and, uh, and pots and pans and everything that David would need to kind of regain control of things and, and establish his defense, not only with his family, but the 600 men who were loyal to him and all of their families and then the soldiers that were streaming in from all over the land. So he had done a, a very great good deed uh, to David at a time when it was very risky for him to do that. Again, you've got a very principled man who takes at a time of vulnerability in a situation, does the right thing even before he knows how it's going to turn out. And so he went down, came down from there, and he went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now, uh, Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. That's like 120 for those days. And he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed in Mahanaim, for he was a very rich man. I guess so, if you could supply food for that large of a family and army out in the wilderness. And the king said to Barzillai, he wants to repay him for his kindness, come across with me and I will provide for you while you're with me in Jerusalem. That's a pretty good thing. That's better than Social Security. Well, anything's better than what am I saying? Ten years or whatever. But anyway, basically the offer that David is making is, hey, why don't you come to me to Jerusalem and I'll take care of you. Bring your whole family and you and your family will live in the comfort of, of my palace and the comfort of the blessings of Israel uh, for the rest of your life. So this is just like this is the kind of security that someone would dream about having. It's the ultimate next to what God gives us, the ultimate human offer of not having to worry about food and clothing and shelter again for the rest of your life. It was a, a tremendous offer. But Barzillai said to the king, how long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I, I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between the good and the bad? For instance, can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Taste buds are shot. He can, he can put Tabasco like crazy on what he's eating and not even know what he's eating. Corn on the cob, beef, anything, it all tastes like the same to him. Nothing. So he said, I'm old. What are you going to serve me? All these gourmet meals in Jerusalem? I won't even be able to taste it. Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? You'll have all of this entertainment and singing. It'll be wonderful. I can't even hear anything anymore. Why should your servant be a burden, further burden to my uh, Lord, the king? Isn't it great today? You just think about the technology we have for getting older Hearing aids, the amazing things they can do in the realm of dentistry to keep things there and everything. I, like, I think it's in Ecclesiastes where it gives that one of the great descriptions of uh, growing older in it and talks about, you know, kind of the chompers are gone and you wake up at the sound, the sound of the first bird in the morning, you know. Used to be your parents would have to wake you up at noon. Now a bird chirps at two and you're up, you know. <laughs> Going to finish reading War and Peace. 
Got to keep a sense of humor about all of this. So I don't want to be a burden to the king. He said, your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And why should the king repay me with such a reward? I did, what I did was a small thing. He said, a very beautiful man. Please let your servant turn back again that I may die in my own city. So he's going to, he, said, he asked David, please. David's a king. These people are respectful toward one another, but toward a king. So he wants to decline David's offer. But he's going to ask permission to do it again. Very is a very beautiful man to look at how he conducts himself. He's older. He's all these things. He's got wealth. He's got power and all of this. But he's he's very sensitive to respect and to show David respect in front of his people. And so he said, listen, would you give permission for your servant to decline your offer and go back? I just want to die in my hometown. I want to be buried where my father and my mother were buried. It was very important in the ancient world to be buried in your hometown, in the grave of your father and your mother. So he said, I, I, don't, I can't enjoy what you're offering to me. I just want to live the rest of my days in my hometown. But here is your servant, Chimham, probably uh, uh, one of his sons or one of his grandsons, let him cross over with my Lord the King and do for him what seems good to you. Whatever you're going to do for me, do for him. And the king answered, Chimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now, whatever you request of me, I will do for you. It's interesting when we get into the book of Jeremiah, probably 2025, but when we get in the book of Jeremiah, we'll see Chimham's name and discover that he and his family settled in the area of, um, Jeru uh, of Bethlehem and uh, continued a presence in Israel for generations. And then all of the people went over the Jordan. And when the king had crossed over and the king uh, kissed Barzillai, so they uh, part and say goodbye to one another. I mean, really united in a relationship through difficulty. And he blessed him and he returned to his own place. And the king went on to Gilgal and Chimham went with him. And all the people of Judah escorted the king and also half the people of Israel. And just then all the men of Israel came to the king. So, so far, just two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, both of them in the very southern part of Israel. Benjamin and Judah have been uh, escorting David from across the Jordan toward Jerusalem. The other ten tribes hear about it. And so they come running now and uh, to intercept this uh, kind of a parade back into Jerusalem. And they came to the king and they said to the king, why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his, uh, his household and all David's men with him across the Jordan? And so they accuse the tribe of Judah of trying to pull a fast one. Why are you doing this sneaky thing here? Coming in and escorting David back into the land without letting us know about it. You're doing it because you want to get political favors from David once he becomes the king again. So they got evil in their own hearts. So they're ascribing the same wicked motivation to the men of Judah. And so it's an accusation against him. You're trying to cut us out of 
future pork from Washington here or from Jerusalem. You're trying to cut us out from political influence in the land here. And so this is the accusation that that is made. And so the men of Judah, they answered the men of, of Israel. These are all tough guys. And uh, and so they've been accused of of this. And they said, because the king is a close relative of ours, that's why he's he's blood. We're his tribe. That's why we're bringing him back into the city. Why are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? You accuse us of doing this for political and material gain. But they say David's been the king for how many decades? Has he ever shown any favoritism to the tribe of Judah over the other 12 tribes? How in the world do we get this guy to Washington? No pork. For the entirety of his reign, David did what was right for the entire nation. Not on the basis of I'm the king and these people are associated with me and let's bring enough back to their district. No, it's beautiful it related to him. Just a, a just the kind of a leader that you would want. He never showed any kind of favoritism to any of the tribes. And the men of Judah or the men of Israel then answered the men of Judah and said, we have ten shares in the king, and therefore we have more right to David than you. We're ten tribes, and you're just two tribes. So we outnumber you. Well, listen, they're all tough guys. They're all warriors. But you can still sound like a baby when you're having an argument like this. Oh, yeah? Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise Bringing back the king, didn't we, hadn't we kind of come to the conclusion David should be the king long before you guys ever got on, on board? Well, they, they had, they had taken counsel and advised that they wanted to do it, but they never extended the invitation to David. And so they're, they're claiming firsties here on this. And yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And so they backed down. For a minute. And then all kinds of problems are going to happen in chapter 20. I mean, one week, they are a part of the army that is trying to kill David and his family. And the next week, they are fighting over who is going to be the first to bring him back into Jerusalem. The fickleness of people. Terrible. Oh, it's in me. I'm not looking down on anyone. I don't want it to be in me. I want God to cleanse it from me, of course, you too. But the fickleness. The beautiful thing about David here and and all of this, the reason that David is becoming the king once again is because he was God's choice. And God wasn't done with him yet. And until God was done with him being the king, then nothing, no weapon that could be formed against David was going to prosper in violating God's call upon his life. And so all of this drama, all of this, this, uh, 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 you know, um, betrayal, all of these things, and yet God is faithful behind all of it. 
You know what's amazing to me about the whole thing? Is you put yourself in David's shoes and you just say, listen, fooey on all of you. I'm going to just buy a little place on the coast in Joppa and you people can all do whatever you want to do. But he doesn't do it. It's a marvel that David was willing to come back and take the position once again to be the king over people as fickle as this. And, and, uh, and the reason that he did it is in order to be faithful to God and God's call upon his life. I don't think David is restored to be the king and he looks and says, all right, wow, I can make another million dollars He's brought so many, literally hundreds of millions of dollars of wealth into Jerusalem for Solomon to use in the building of the temple after David is dead. It's not about money at all. It's all about being faithful to God's call upon his life at this point in his life. And he is willing to die to self in order to be faithful to it, even to serve people as Fickle as these people, and even after they had mistreated him so badly. I don't care who you are, who any of us are, in our service to the Lord, there will come a point where you will look at what you're doing for the Lord and you will say, Lord, I wouldn't do this for anyone else but I will do this for you and it isn't a bad reflection upon the people that we serve but we have to come to that place in our lives and in our ministries so we're not tossed back and forth whether we're going to do this or not do this on the basis of what people think or they don't think or how loyal they are or how unloyal they are. But it all comes back to, am I going to be faithful to the Lord? Do I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord one day? That's what it all comes down to for David. And that's what it all comes down to for us. He wanted to finish his calling well, and he was still, by God's perspective, the king of Israel. God had not, all this stuff happened, but God had not released him from that responsibility. So he had to return to that particular role. I think Jerusalem's just as nice as Joppa. If you ever get a chance to see both of them. And, uh, but this is what, this is what David was facing and why he came uh, back to continue to serve. Well, let's have the worship team come forward for uh, a few minutes here this evening. As we just close and pick things up in chapter 20, Lord willing, next week, and allow the Lord to put any kind of finishing touches on whatever we've studied tonight, but maybe just upon our heart in general in some other area uh, of our lives as we just close out our evening uh, spending a little more time worshiping this great God of ours.